Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Avi Havivi's weekly Sidur class. If there are some of you out there in podcast land who are just joining us, I strongly urge you to listen to the last three weeks, starting with the last week of April, because we started a whole new thing. And we're talking now about Jewish ideas about God, Jewish theology, and how some of them filter into the Sidur. Um, so we've done that for three weeks. The first two weeks, I'm just reminding you, just to look back, first two weeks, uh, we talked about an idea in the Bible that God can sometimes take the presence of a human-like form and interact with people which is sometimes called a malach, or physical representation of God. Last week, we talked about the ideology or theology in sections of the Torah that um, are concerned about issues of the Kohanim, the priests, and the Mishkan, the sanctuary, which is that God has something called a kavod, (laughs) a presence, somehow a physical presence, that actually inhabits the Mishkan, the temple, actually lives there. And today we're going to look at some texts from uh, Sefer Dvarim, Deuteronomy, and other books influenced by Dvarim, which will have a very different idea about God's presence. I'll suggest in advance that some of these texts are actually in dialogue with or even opposition to some of the texts that we read last week about the material um, concerning the priestly view. And then just to look ahead, I think we're going to have two more sessions on God in the Bible. One one is going to be God as present in nature. That might be one or two sessions. And another one on God in relationship with humans, Uh, God, the God of feelings, who is in relationship with human beings. Um, and that'll be one session. That's what I anticipate. And then we'll be done with um, biblical views of God for the moment, and then we will move forward historically. Okay? So today, we're still looking, still looking at gods in the Bible, and mostly the thought of Sefer Devarim. And I'm going to screen share a text, which, if you're listening to the podcast will be available as a um, handout with the podcast. Thank you to our tech person, Bert. Thank you, Bert. Okay. Okay. So in Sefer Dvarim, we have a different kind of idea about God, how God is present in the world. And um, this has to do with two aspects of God. Uh, One is God's shame, God's name, and we'll look at some passages and we'll then ask, what does that mean, God's name? Um, and the other is God's words, dvarim, uh, dvarim, words or utterances. Okay, so let's start with uh, dvarim, Perak Deuteronomy chapter 4, the passage you have here. This is where Moshe is recounting the events of Sinai. He's recapping. Uh, and he says, you know, remember what you saw at Sinai. Be careful. Don't go astray. Um, by the way, there's basically three things 
that Deuteronomy warns people about over and over and over again to not go astray by doing? What are those three things? Deuteronomy's three big lessons that Moshe is hawking us about over and over and over again. Worshiping other gods. Worshiping other gods is one of them. Good. Another one. Shout it out. Keeping Shabbat. Nope. Good good guess. Nope. It's certainly mentioned, but it's not one of the things that's flogged over and over again. Worshiping other gods. Making an image of God, meaning actually worshiping God, the correct God, yud Vavke, Hashem, but in the form of an image, an idol. And number three is worshiping God someplace, having ritual practice someplace other than one centralized place, which is not named in Deuteronomy, which we assume is Jerusalem, which, of course, the Samaritans assume is Shechem. Okay? Um, so worship God in only one place. Do not make an image and do not worship other gods. These are the three big things that Deuteronomy says, be careful, be careful, be careful, don't do it. So Moshe is saying, don't do it, don't go astray, because when you stood there at Mount Sinai, here's what happened. You came forward and said, I'm going to, I'm going to scroll to, you see where I am. You came forward and stood at the foot of the mountain. The mountain was ablaze with flames to the very sky, dark with densest clouds, right? Esh, Choshech, Anan, Varafel. God spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but perceived no shape, nothing but a voice. How is this? Just what I just read, those two lines, two verses. How is this? similar to, and how is it different from what we read last week about the revelation at Sinai? What's similar? Sound, fire. Fire, cloud, okay, big, big storm, something or other. Fire and cloud. There was fire and cloud at Sinai. What's different? doesn't say that uh, that uh, Moses saw God, said he could only right. hear. Well, I want to say that more strongly. It doesn't say that he did. It says... You saw nothing. What did we read last week? Anyone remember? That God passed by him, but he couldn't see his face. Right, but even before that, remember the 70 elders and Nadav and Avihu and Aharon and Moshe, they sat, they ate, and they they feasted, and they saw a sapphire pavement, and above it was God, and they they beheld God, and nothing yet nothing happened to them. Okay? So they saw God, yet they lived to tell the tale. So here, Moshe is saying, you did not see anything. There was no, there were visuals at Sinai. The visuals was smoke and fire, okay? There was no visual representation of God. All there was, was sound, okay? By the way, call could be translated as voice. It could be translated as sound, and with this voice or sound, God declared to you the covenant, the Ten Commandments, and wrote them on two tablets of stone. So at Sinai, God was somehow present. God spoke words out of the fire. Okay. All there was was sound. And these words were written down on the tablets. Here's another passage in Zvarim. 
uh, where he's, he took review, reviewing the, the sin of the golden calf. <laughs> Moshe saying, I went up the mountain. I got the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Luchot Habrit, that Hashem had made with you. God made the covenant. I hung out there for 40 days and 40 nights. And God gave me two tablets inscribed by the finger of God with the exact words that Hashem had addressed to you on the mountain out of the fire on the day of the assembly. And God gave me these two tablets of stone. And then I came down and you sinned and I broke the tablets. Third passage, Deuteronomy. So I went back up and God said to me, carve out two, meaning second set, tablets of stone like the first, come up to me on Sinai on the mountain and make an ark of wood. Aha. So in the second tablets, who makes the tablets? Moses. Who makes the ark? Yes. Who makes the ark? Moses. Moses. Who made the ark in the book of Exodus? Betzalel, the artisans. Remember the ark, it's made of wood and it's covered with, with gold. And it, and it's in the Mishkan, in the book of Exodus story. By the way, in the book of Exodus story, the ark does not even exist at the time of the Sinai revelation. Okay. So the, here we have a different version in Sefer Dvarim and Deuteronomy. Moshe makes the ark, brings the ark up with you. Of course, doesn't tell us anything about how Moshe is able to schlep the ark by himself. We're, we're just left to imagine that. And God says, what am I going to do? I'm going to write on the tablets, the commandments that were on the first tablets, and you will deposit those tablets in the Aron. So I made an ark of wood. By the way, no mention of lined with gold. I, ca- I Moshe, carved, it's telling the people I carved out two tablets of stone. I took them up the mountain. God inscribed on the tablets the same text as on the first, the Ten Commandments. Okay, so there's a second set, repetition of the Ten Commandments. Then I left and went down from the mountain, and I deposited the tablets. Please pay attention. I deposited the tablets at the ark that I had made, where they still are, as Hashem had commanded me. Okay, so, so far, what's different about this from what we read last week about God's kavod in the Mishkan? How is this similar? How is this different? Any thoughts? Well, so far, I haven't seen anything here about God being present in the Mishkan. God's message or words or the Brit is present in the Mishkan. There's an object which represents God's will. It's written down. It's in the Aron. So, Remember last week, we read about ideas that God comes to dwell in the Kodesh HaKodashim, the Holy of Holies, and God is somehow called Yoshev HaKruvim, the one who sits on the cherubs, which is on top of the ark. So we we filled that out a little bit, some idea that um, the, the Holy of Holies is where God dwells, and the Ark and the Kruvim are a sort of throne or chariot, depending on the text that you read. In Dvarim here, it seems to suggest what's in the Kodesh HaKodeshim is a chest. And in the chest, there are the Shnei Luchot Habrit, the two tablets of the covenant. And that's it. So 
the presence of God in the Mishkan are God's words to us that are written down, and that is deposited in a box, an Aron. So the Aron here seems to be not God's throne, not God's chariot, but I don't think it looks like an Aron Kodesh, but the function is sort of like our our Aron Kodesh. There's a sacred thing, and so the sacred thing is kept in a chest that protects it, and that is the Aron. And it's not made by Kohanim or artisans. It's made by Moses, and it's made by Moses at God's instruction so that he has a place to put the Luchot Habrit, the Tablets of the Covenant. What is, then, God's relationship to the Mishkan? So let's look further in Deuteronomy. The passage I'm going to give you now, I could have given you a bunch of others that say the same thing that we're about to read. Here's the law of keeping Pesach. All right. It may be familiar to you because it's the, it's the Torah reading we read on the last day of Yom Tov on the three pilgrimage festivals. Keep the month of Aviv and the Passover sacrifice and you should slaughter the Passover sacrifice to God where Bamakom Asher Yivchar Hashem Lishaken Shmo Sham in the place where Hashem will, now I want to look at the Hebrew and not accept the English translation, okay? Because English we have establish, which I'm not sure that's in Hebrew, and we have divine name, which I'm not sure is Hebrew. I, I just gave you the JPS translation. I didn't change it, although I wish I would have changed it. Maybe I'll put it in brackets in the next edition. Literally, this means in the place which where God will choose to cause his name to dwell, lishakain, the verb must make us think of what word? What noun? Shechina. The shechina or the mishkan. Ah, mishkan. Right? Mishkan is the dwelling place. Okay? And it's called the dwell in, in the priestly texts that we looked at from Shemot and Vayikra, Exodus and Leviticus last week. It seems to be called the Mishkan, which can literally be translated as the dwelling place, because God's presence, which is referred to as the Shekhinah, dwells there. The, the representation of God's Shekhinah is the Kavod. Here, in this passage in Deuteronomy, and it's repeated at the end, you should only go to the place that God will establish to cause his name to dwell there, to dwellify his name there. God will choose to dwellify God's name there. So why is it called the Mishkan, this place? Because what dwells there, according to Sefer Dvarim? God's name, right? No mention of Kavod, God's name. So we have two lines of two pieces of thought in these texts. One is that in the Mishkan, and we'll see later on in a moment, in the in the Beit HaMikdash, in the future, in the temple in Jerusalem, there's a chest, and the chest has in it the tablet, which contained the Brit, and that's what the Aron is. That's what's in the Holy of Holies. God's words written down, which God 
transmitted, actually inscribed, gave to Moses, and then, although this is not made explicitly, it'll it'll be made some pretty explicit in the next passage, and then God left, right? So what represents God in the Mishkan? Two things. One, the tablets with the breed that God wrote, the words. Two, God's shame. God's shame dwells there. So I just want to pause and say, like, what the heck does that mean? And what does God's shame mean? Does it mean like Michael lives in Michael's house? So I call it Michael's house. His name dwells there. And this is called God's house. Does it mean name in a concrete sort of way? Or what else can that connote? So that's my question to you. Michael, do you have answers or questions? Uh, a little of each. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that perhaps there, the name and the, uh, the, uh, the tablets are being used synonymously in, in the sense that the tablets are dwelling there because they're in the ark, which is in the Mishkan, and God's name is on the tablets. Yes. So, so yeah, maybe, go that's ahead. Sense, maybe that's the sense in which God's name dwells there. So in some uh, concrete sense, concrete, no pun intended, right? right? God's name, right? Anochi Hashem Elohecha, God's name is on the tablets. Therefore, in some actual physical representation sort of way, God's name is in the Mishkan. Okay, right. good. Other thoughts about that? What else can name mean? Or connect. So, so I'm not. I'm not sure. I want to. Um, yeah, go ahead. Larry's going to turn the video on. Hold on. Okay. He can turn the video on. Thank you. It's polite right. or speak without video. That's acceptable. No, that's okay. Turn the video on. So, so I mean, the thing that I'm struck by with this is if 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 um, one looks at critical biblical scholarship that says that this book was actually, I think a standalone book maybe, um, and written at some point later when the temple was already in existence, that this was an ex post facto um, way to say that what, what is in the temple um, Kadoshim Mm -hmm. was what was in the Mishkan. Yep. So all the stuff about the cloud and everything that that wasn't happening in the in the temple times. Mm-hmm. So it was rewritten to suggest that yeah, the Mishkan was just like the temple. Okay, and the temple is finish that thought. The temple is or the, has like, right. It has it has a um, a place where something is inside. I don't know if if the tablets are there. God is inside. Right. So we seem to have, again, two things. One, there are actually tablets there, which means God's covenant is there, a version of God's covenant. We have other things in the Torah that are called God's covenant, but something that is called God's breach and God's shame. I, I, I want I want people to think some more about the word shame. Michael? Yes. Another, another possibility is that since only the high priest knew how to pronounce God's name, mm-hmm. and the high priest uh, undertook activities in the Holy of Holies, yep. that Therefore, that's why God's name dwelt there. Because okay, okay, God's good. Name. Okay, good. Because it was uttered there. God's holy name, which was not uttered by other people, the unutter- unutterable name was uttered in the Mishkan. Okay, right. good. Other thoughts? What does it mean when I say, "Hey, he's got a good name"? Yeah, that restaurant has a good name. Reputation. Reputation. 
what what's the what's the difference to you if I say God's kavod is there or God's name is there? Everyone is shy today. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I just want to suggest that whatever shame is, we had a couple of concrete answers. The name is written down. The name is said. Whatever shame is, it is somehow um, a more, I would call it a more abstract thing than God's physical presence, right? God, in a second, yeah, Larry, God's self isn't there. God's name is there. It's somehow a, a, a representation of God, but it is somehow more abstract and less concrete, okay? And I want to suggest that there is some parallel in that with we have God's words. There are words, the teaching, right? Or again, what we we would say if we fast-forwarded this, we might say the Torah, even though they're not saying the whole Torah is written down there, right? There's some representation, there's some uh, manifestation of God's presence. It's the teaching, and and God physically is not there. God's shame is there. Larry? Yeah, I, at risk of repeating what you said slightly differently, I, I wanted, I was going to go back to what Diane was saying. So if you consider that the introduction of, <clears throat> of, of um, the divinity, our divinity, the Yudhei-Vavhei divinity, was in opposition to the anthropomorphized gods of the other cultures, and we're told not to worship those clearly anthropomorphized gods, the first step is to say, well, God has corporeality, but you can't see it. And then the next thing is to say, wait, and where did we, and where, wait, and where did we see that? God has corporate, you meant that in the the priestly documents from last week? Yeah, in Shemot. Okay, God has a presence, but you're not, sorry, you're not allowed to see it. Right. Because you die. Right. Go on. And And then the next step is to say, no, that's not what matters. What matters is the writings. So you can, in a sense, worship and hold holy the writings in this ark. And that becomes, it, it, I'm going to interject something. At the risk of that becoming an idol, you then say, no, it's not even the physicality of the writings itself. It's the more abstract idea of holiness that we're going to embed in the name of God, which is what you're getting at. What, 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 is, what is this holiness of the name, which, which I've always found Interesting, and I'm hoping you're going to go on and talk more about that. So what Diane was saying was, well, in the in Devarim, which is, I think, J- Josiah, I'm not, I, I can't remember. Um, by that time, we'd you're, already... You're ahead. Okay, L- Larry, I, I want you to limit yourself to just text that we're, we're reading, that we've read. Okay. So no All extra right. knowledge. Okay, all I'm saying is, yeah. this is part of the progression of our increasingly abstracting from... Um, from what's the, uh, from from, con- from concrete concreteness here in terms of our ideas of holiness. Okay, so you see this as evolutionary from more concrete to less concrete, more concrete to more abstract. The uh, the only thing I want to point out as a um, 
maybe a critique of what you're saying is that implies that something was on a, you know, evolution implies that something was on a more basic level and then proceeds to a more um, abstract level, which kind of privileges that, meaning I would much rather be me than a triceratops, right? So I privilege humans, right? Me than a multicellular organism floating in the soup, right? Um, As opposed to just another potential view of parallel views that might exist simultaneously, they're just, they could be parallel ways of viewing the same data rather than evolutionary. Because evolutionary always privileges the later over the earlier. I just want to point that out. We're on a more abstract level. We're not like those concrete primitive people. Okay. So I, I say maybe. Okay. Or maybe, right? Uh, you know, as, as Deborah commented, uh, last week, you know, the people who go in front of the ark and da da da, that seems like idol worship. But again, that's privileging a particular view and saying that another view is, um, in air quotes, lesser because it is on, on a more air quotes primitive level, less evolved. So I just want to throw that out there and caution. Okay. Um, we're going to run up against time again. I'm going to go fast. Okay, I'm going to let everyone think about it. In 1 Kings, first book of Kings, we have the passage where Solomon builds the temple, okay? And we would see, this is really interesting, this passage, because it's, it's I was going to say confused, but that's not right. It's fused. So first we say, there was nothing inside the ark, but the two tablets of stone, which Moses placed there at Horeb, when the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites, right? What is there to see here? In the Kodesh, there is no, there's a chest with tablets. That's it. Okay. But then when God, Shlomo builds the temple, the priests came out of the sanctuary, for the cloud had filled the house of the Lord, and the priests were not able to remain to perform the service because of the cloud, because the kavod of Hashem filled the house. Hmm. So we have this piece, which kind of, I'm going to say, incorporates some of the thought that we read last week, right? It, actually, with the same vocabulary. God's kavod, it's exactly the same vocabulary, by the way, as what happened when the Mishkan was inaugurated. This is talking about the temple in Jerusalem. Last week, we read about the sanctuary in the desert, but it's the same language. The cloud, which is the presence of God, fills the house, and so much so that everyone has to run out of it. They can't fit there. They can't be present. And then Solomon declared, the Lord has chosen to abide in a thick cloud, which could be the cloud in the temple. It could be the cloud on Sinai. I have now built for you a stately house, a place where you may dwell forever. By the way, the verb for dwell here is not lishkon. It's l'shivtecha, to dwell, to live. Okay. And then Solomon gives a long, 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 long speech. Incredibly long at the inaugural, it's right after this in the same, uh, is it same chapter? It's in the same chapter. And he gives a long speech and he says, here's what the temple is for. Here's what he says. After he just said, I built a house for you. And after the narrator said, God's kavod filled the whole Mishkan so the people had to leave. Then he says, Solomon says, but will God really dwell on earth? 
Even the heavens to their uttermost reaches cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built, which I like to point out on the surface of it seems a little contradictory because he said, I built a house for you where you will dwell forever. And then he says, but but really, how could God possibly, even the heavens cannot contain God. How could you, you possibly be in this house that I built? May your eyes be open. Now he's talking to God. Shlomo is talking to God, King Solomon. May your eyes be open day and night toward this house, toward the place of which you have said, my name shall abide there. Yiyeh Shemi Sham. We have the name again, the shame. May you heed the prayers which your servant will offer toward this place. You'll hear the supplication which your servant, your people Israel, offer towards this place. Give heed in your heavenly abode, which is in Hebrew, mekom shivtecha, where you live, el hashamayim, in the heavens. So Shlomo is saying, first he said, I built this house for you to live, same verb, lashevet, forever. But then he seems to say something contradictory. Maybe he's reflecting and says, but but how could I possibly say you dwell in this house? Even the whole heavens cannot contain you. Okay? So, actually, you're up in heaven. Please, oh God, from your place up in heaven, always pay attention to this house because people are going to direct their prayers here. So the, the temple is sort of a, a transmitter. Okay? And then he gets lots of... Then he gets lots of examples. If there's a famine, the people will direct their prayers towards this house. Please look from heaven on their prayers. If there's a war, the people will direct their prayers to this house. Please direct your attention towards their prayers. You in heaven, says over and over again. And then yet several of them. Then another example. If a foreigner who's not of your people comes from the land, of distant land for the sake of your name, Lama'an Shimcha, Shmecha, because they will hear your great name, which probably doesn't mean they heard the Kohen Gadol utter yud ke vav or probably doesn't mean that they saw the Ten Commandments, right? Somehow or other, they know of God's name, whatever that means. And that Gentile will come and pray toward this house, el habayit hazeh, not bivayit hazeh. You, God, please hear, again, same phrase, in the Shamayim, the place where you dwell, so that then everyone in the world will recognize your name because your name is attached to this house. Okay. I added one more sentence from Isaiah, which takes this um, idea that Solomon said in his speech, can God really dwell on earth? Even the heaven can't contain you. See my cursor there, top of that speech. Uh, Isaiah, the famous first verse that we recognize from the Rosh Chodesh Haftorah, Haftorah, whenever Rosh Chodesh falls on Shabbat. This is what God says. The heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. How could you possibly build a house to me? Right? It's a rhetorical question. How could you possibly think that some physical house would be my abode? So in these texts, we have a progression from thought in Deuteronomy that in the Mishkan, there's a chest which has God's words. And what the temple is, is a place where God names it, whatever that is, causes to dwell God's name, somehow not God's physical presence. Then we have Solomon building the temple. We have these the repetition that there's nothing in the Aron except 
the Breit, the tablets of the Breit, right? The, so it would seem to be saying God does not live in the Kodesh Kodeshim. Then we have these odd two verses which seem to not fit. Okay. If you were, if you were a Bible scholar, you might say, insert a critical Bible scholar, you might say, inserted by someone who wanted to make sure that priestly theology was left, was not left out of the story. Because the whole rest of the story of Solomon's building of the temple totally ignores this idea. But here are these two verses that seem to not exactly fit that God's kavod comes and fills the Mishka, the Beit HaMikdash in the, in a cloud and everyone has to leave. They can't fit in the temple or they can't be in the temple because God's kavod is there. It's the only place in the Solomon narrative where it's, where it's mentioned. And then Solomon says, so I built a place for you to live in the cloud. And then Solomon says, but really, how could you possibly dwell anywhere? The heavens can't contain you, right? Okay, you're in the heavens. That's where you live. Please look down at this house so that when people direct their prayers to it, because they've heard of your shame attached to this house, then you will hear their prayers. By the way, as if, I'd like to point out, you might say, oh, God doesn't pay attention. God can't hear their prayers if they pray wherever they are, which is kind of, that would be our modern question. But in this view, Shlomo, King Solomon seems to be saying, please look at, keep an eye out, God, for this temple, because this is where the prayers are going to come to. People don't always even, he says, people won't necessarily come to the temple. They're going to direct their prayers to the temple as we do facing Jerusalem, meaning there'll be a directional vector. And you sitting in heaven, you're up there, you're not down here in the temple. Please pay attention to what's going on, because when they direct their prayers there, then you will take note of their prayers and hopefully answer them. And Isaiah, poetically, really is just taking the idea, you know, Solomon said that even the heavens cannot contain you, and Isaiah says it differently. I think, you know, the heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool, how could you possibly think that you could build a house for me? I, By the way, I, this is probably the part of Isaiah that was written during the exile after the first temple had been destroyed before the second temple has, had been built. How could someone possibly think that I would live in a house? Okay, we're really running over. I think I'm going to say I'd like to hear more discussion about this, but I'm going to call time because we're 10 minutes over, and I promise next week we will start by reviewing these texts and discussing them and thinking about them, reflecting on comparing them to what we've done the last few weeks prior. I promise that's what we'll do. Okay. So I'm going to stop share. I'm going to say, I'm going to say, I'd like everyone to mull this over and think about it. Think about what you get out of it. And I promise next week we will have, we will start out with reviewing and discussing. Uh, everyone. Can you send, can you send the just list of sources and it's going to be it's going to be with the podcast attached to the podcast when Bert posts it. If you want me to send it to you personally, send me an email abramavivi at gmail dot com. Okay, I'm going to stop. Good. Everyone have a good day. Stay healthy. Be Torah. God willing, we'll meet again next week. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, 
go to tbala.org.